coming to you from fabulous Las Vegas. The right side is the winning side. The late move is the correct move. Sports betting capital of the world. We all know when a sharp like me weighs in, the lines move. It's a party for your ears. <laughs> This is The Buffet with Chad and Scooch. I want to buy that guy a buffet. Hello, welcome back to The Buffet. I am Chad Millman Scooch. Bob Scoochie from New Orleans is off this week. He took off last week too, so clearly he's a little lazy. But Scooch is coming back next week. Um, on the podcast today, we have so much to discuss because we're getting we're in the middle of uh, in the middle of the college basketball conference tournaments. We're a week away from the tournament itself beginning. Later on in the show, Tom Tolbert, the voice, the afternoon voice of KNBR in San Francisco. You also may know him as a former NBA player. Also may know him as a former All-American in Arizona, who also happens to be a huge better, a massive, massive better. And he knows the betting markets. Um, so he's going to come on a little bit. He's going to play You Bet Your Life. We're going to talk a little bit about Arizona. We're going to talk a little bit about the Pac-12 tournament. We're going to talk about uh, college basketball in general, heading into March Madness. Before we get to that, my first guest, if you follow Gambling Twitter, you know exactly who he is. His, his name is Lockie Lockerson. In real life, his name is Ken Barkley, and he is a former ESPN producer. Ken, how are you, man? I'm good, Chad. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So not only are you a former ESPN producer, but you are a brand new contributor to the Action Network. And um, I love how this happened. Like, Tell me how you got into gambling and then decided you were going to make a go of it in your life, sort of trying to make sure, it. No in this world yeah no problem i mean it's been it's been a crazy journey no question so uh i know a lot of people that that come onto these podcasts and do a lot of these things they they sort of preface it by saying i have you know i have more than 40 years in the industry you know like i've been around since 1968 or whatever doing this like i've only really seriously been doing this for like two to three years um i'm i'm a super newcomer to sort of the the serious side of gambling if you want to call it that like the actual you know, sort of doing your own work and preparation and handicapping and understanding markets and all those things. And so basically, like there came a point, uh, I worked at ESPN for more than a decade, worked on a lot of really interesting shows with a lot of interesting people. And there basically came a point where my passion for this work sort of ended up overtaking my passion for other stuff that I wanted to do. So as a result, I sort of made a, a bold switch and I'm now spending much more of my time doing this content uh, than I was before, which, which I'm really excited about. I will tell you, I had um, multiple people reach – you had reached out to me about all this stuff, and we had a conversation, and we started talking. And you and I, you know, we didn't know each other at ESPN, um, despite sort of being there and having a very similar set of friends. Uh, multiple people reached out to me on your behalf, including Stanford Steve, um, including Tom DeCordy, who is uh, the producer of the SVP show. Um talking about what a genius you were when it come when it came to writing about sports betting. Wow. That's uh, the bar has now been set pretty high. So I, I almost wish you hadn't said that because now everybody's going to be on pins and needles for what I'm going to say next. But yeah, I mean, a ton of, there's a ton of smart people that work there. We both know that and a ton of good content that still comes out of there. Some of it about gambling, especially. So uh, great to hear that stuff. 
Oh, I didn't. I th- I figured you put them up to it. I'm like, hey, can you reach out? <laughs> yeah. Like saying to Stanford and to Cordy, like, hey, can you reach out to Millman and like put in the good word for me? Make sure to use the word genius. That's really important. So, so. genius, absolute genius. But you got to do it a very specific way because you write a lot about futures and you have a story up on the Action Network today about SEC futures and uh, for the tournament. And this is a strange year because Kentucky is not one of the favorites and the two teams, as you sort of smartly put it in, in contextualize it in the piece that are atop the conference seedings are Auburn and Tennessee, who are supposed to be ninth and 13th respectively. How does the conference set up for you then? So the, the thing that's really interesting is that I feel like people have spent the entire year waiting for a regression from those two teams and, and didn't really get one. And as a result, we have sort of this weird, unique opportunity in this tournament uh, where the pricing is like kind of out of whack. You basically have the two teams that everyone thought were going to be really good, Florida and Kentucky, rated a certain way. And now you have Auburn and Tennessee, the teams that actually finished at the top of the conference. All four of those teams basically have identical prices right now. Kentucky has a little bit more attractive price. I think the thing that's really interesting Anytime you approach futures, there's actually a difference between who you think is going to win the tournament and who you should bet on. And that will immediately make no sense to a lot of people. So here's sort of what I'm talking about. I think Florida is the most likely team to win this tournament, um, but their price is sort of correct. And the reason is, is that they have to play Tennessee, who's probably the second best team in the conference in the semifinals. That matchup is incredibly likely. Then most likely they would probably play Kentucky in the final. So there's just not a lot of value in the price right now that you get for them. Meanwhile, Kentucky, who I also think happens to have like a really high ceiling, their path is really easy. Uh, They get Auburn on their semi and Auburn is the team I'm trying to fade like crazy right now because they played really poorly down the stretch. They played, I would say more like the team that they're supposed to play, like considering all the players that they're missing. Uh, they had sort of two highly touted players that didn't even play this year. Uh, their best shot blockers out for the year now. So they're a team down the stretch that I've been looking to fade. Kentucky gets them in the semifinal. Most likely uh, they're hanging out around five to one right now. The price has actually gone up like a few cents. So if you grab them at five to one, then even if they just get to the Auburn game or they get to the final, like there's immediate hedge opportunities if they play Florida, which I think is really likely. Um, so Kentucky's a really attractive option. Their ceiling is really high. They're playing really well right now. Um, the other team that I think is just kind of interesting as a long shot price grab, uh, which I talk about in the article is Alabama. And they're a team that people were pretty excited about a lot of this season. Uh, like obviously Colin Sexton is somebody who NBA draft guys have been following the whole year, but this is sort of a team with a lot of talent that has had a really tough time with consistency and down the stretch that's come through big time. They've lost five games in a row, but nothing has really changed as a result of that. They've just, you know, sometimes you look at results and it's, oh, there's like a schematic change. There's a lot of injuries. There's, you know, some reason for this failure. Like this is sort of the same Alabama team really in terms of its core parts. And, you know, I think that their ceiling is still pretty high because of the freshmen they have on their team. You know, they're like a massive long shot right now. They're 28 to one. They play, they don't play in the first round, but they get Texas A&M in the second round. They played them basically to a draw less than a week ago, uh, a game arguably that they should have won. And, Texas A&M, meanwhile, is 10 to 1 to win the tournament. So I have two teams who should basically be rated equals, and one of them is 10 to 1 to win the tournament, and one of them is 28 to 1. That immediately yells out to me that there's probably a little bit of value there that's skewed by Alabama's losing streak. So my sort of philosophy is I'm taking Kentucky and Alabama. I'm hoping that they end up playing sort of in the the Auburn semi. I'm hoping they end up playing each other. Uh, When that happens, there's like all kinds of lucrative opportunities available. You say it as if it's... And automatic. What if it doesn't happen? 
what if, what if what doesn't happen? Like, let's say Alabama doesn't play Kentucky in that particular situation, or Florida doesn't play sure. Tennessee in the opposite final. And so all of a sudden, all these scenarios that you've sort of very eloquently outlined and that make total sense from a price shopping perspective, what if they don't happen? Then what do you do? Sure. I mean, the, I mean, what, what anyone would tell you about gambling, especially even people that are successful, is you lose all the time. You lose so frequently that it doesn't affect you whatsoever. You're obviously just trying to win more than you lose. So there are hundreds or even thousands of permutations that can take place in this tournament. Like Vanderbilt could end up winning every game and make it to the final. That's a permutation that can happen. The likelihood of it happening is incredibly small, but that's a thing that could happen. And so, you know, what I'm kind of trying to plan out is like, what are the things that I think are the most likely and like the, I'm trying to compare the likelihood of this matchup happening with the price that is in the market. So if I think that something is really likely to happen and the price tells me that the market doesn't think it's likely to happen, that comparison to me creates value. All right. So as you think about what the tournament looks like is what March Madness looks like, how are you trying to price shop for those teams? Where are you finding value? So the, the thing that gets interesting at this point is you're almost better today is what the seventh. So you're almost better waiting until the seeding has taken place because obviously so much of the seeding is going to determine where value lies. Once you get to this point, you know, when you're in January and February, there are teams that are hundred to one, 150 to one, 200 to one that are sort of lingering in the middle. They still have a lot of time left to sort of improve their profile and resume and metrics to the point that they sort of fit the profile of what a final four team looks like or what a championship team looks like, especially defensively. That's usually one of the big things that defines winners is their adjusted defense is usually through the roof. It's usually in the top 10. So there's still a lot of time left for teams to get there. Now we're, you know, two games away, one game away for some of these teams from the tournament. There's probably not a lot enough time left to change the profile significantly. So as a result, like, the the long shot long shot teams like you're really really taking a flyer on that being said uh one team that i think is really really interesting and i've talked about this a little bit is florida and this is a team that everybody sort of that caught everybody by surprise last year and made a really deep run in the tournament played a lot of dramatic games uh their profile is actually pretty good right now despite the fact that they've had huge consistency issues all season they basically have never been able to get their act together for more than a week at a time and they've showed these flashes that make people like me really excited about what their ceiling is and you know an example is they went to the pk80 tournament and they basically they probably played like the best 30 minutes of basketball of the season against duke and were just running them off the court then they ended up blowing that game that caused them to go into kind of like a bit of a tumble and then the whole conference play was this series of impressive win and then two losses in a row and then two wins over cupcakes and then a loss to somebody that you think they should beat and so i i think their price is really interesting at you know i think it's around 60 to 1 right now you know that's that's sort of correct based on how their season has played out but i think just based on their ceiling and their metrics and how many returning players they had from last year some of the new pieces I think, especially with their coach, I think they're a really sort of exciting proposition. They're going to get seated, you know, somewhere in like five, six, seven range. Uh, I think they are a team that can make a deep run, and I kind of like that price. So how do you measure someone like Virginia? And we've written a lot about this on the Action Network. And by the way, don't forget, later in the show, Tom Tolbert, uh, former NBA player, former college All-American, 
uh, current sports radio host in San Francisco, longtime host there, also contribute over the years to ESPN. He's coming on the show, talk about betting, talk about his You Bet Your Life moment, talk about uh, college basketball in general right now. Um, how do you measure a team, Ken Barkley, a.k.a. Lockie Lockerson, like Virginia, where at the Action Network we've written a lot about how they're still undervalued, even as the consensus number one overall team um, from a futures perspective, based on how they play offense, their um, adjusted um, defensive efficiency rate, uh, sort of the metrics that matter the most if you look back to see who is winning these tournaments um, and who's winning the championships. They're a team that, like, if you play it 10,000 times, which we've done, they win more often than the odds are giving them credit for Sure. So I, I have I have a ton of competing thoughts in my head at all times about Virginia because they're they're sort of a fascinating team this year because this you could argue this is like the best version of Virginia that we can get like what you know every year they sort of they put together these massive winning regular seasons uh, I I fade them in the tournament every single year and it's always successful and my philosophy in those cases was you know when you play a game against you know, a sort of like mid-tier conference opponent or a poor conference opponent, um, you can sort of employ a different strategy than you can against a team that can make shots. And when you play, you know, six games in the tournament, you have to play to win. If you play every game has, you know, the, the smallest number of possessions possible because of the way you play, to me that like opens up variance where if a team makes five more threes than they're supposed to, and a lot of these teams have high ceilings with shooting, then you're getting eliminated. So just that doesn't mean they can't win two to three games, win three to four games, but the likelihood of winning all six games to win to me is lower with them. The other thing with them is that they're like the best coached team in the entire country. And as a result, they don't really have an extra gear to go to. You know, Bennett is getting the most out of them every single game. So when you get to the tournament, sometimes you see these teams like pop, for lack of a better term, where finally sort of like the talent and the coaching comes together and they reach this upper echelon. You know, sort of you saw it with Oregon a little bit last year. And with Virginia, there's no extra gear because Bennett is literally squeezing the maximum out of them every single game because he's such a phenomenal coach. And so I think this year's Virginia is the most interesting because they're, you know, they're doing all the same things, but they're doing them so much better. And, you know, you sort of brought up metrics. One thing that I ran a couple of days ago that I thought was really interesting was, you know, everybody sort of does a different form of this, right? Like what is the profile of a team that wins the NCAA tournament? Uh, even if you just look at like Ken Palm metrics, like let's try to build a profile for what the winner looks like. Uh, there are sort of like minimums and maximums for, teams at the end of the season after they've won the title you look at okay like what were their numbers the only team that fits every single category so that's the adjusted offense rating adjusted defense rating uh what rank they have to be that year in adjusted offense what rank they have to be that year in adjusted defense there's four metrics there the only one who right now before we've even played the tournament fits all four of them is virginia they're the only one um which is not totally uncommon like teams are going to you know, if Duke plays really, really well in the tournament, they're going to get into that profile by the end because their numbers will be so good. But it's just crazy that, like, Virginia's already there. That's how good they are. So, you know, that's that's sort of like a long way of saying I'm not really sure how to how to address Virginia this year. Like, I still think that my philosophy about their team is still logical and, and the path will make a big, a big difference. But, you know, when you encounter more and more teams that are better and better at making shots and you play this style, like to me, you're sort of ripe to be upset at some point along the way. Yeah. Well, that's actually really interesting. I hadn't thought about sort of that possession where if everyone is going to be so 
valuable, you actually limit the opportunity to come back in a game. And that's what those things are all about. Like if you're if you're playing so methodically, you can't break yourself out of that particular rhythm. Sometimes you screw yourself. Right, absolutely. Like Virginia games always sort of play out a certain way. Like how many times this season have you seen Virginia down by 15 points? Like how many times have you seen it? Like it almost never happens. Um, they get, like, you know, obviously they play a lot better with a lead and they milk the clock and, you know, they're getting great offensive possessions all the time. Like their offensive efficiency is very good. Um, and obviously they play phenomenal defense, but, uh, you know, the the types of teams they're going to be playing along the way, like that's, it's possibly going to put them in a position that they're unaccustomed to being in and that will require them playing in a way that they don't want to play. All right. So in that regard, do you feel like Virginia as a futures bet is actually a pretty good play because based on the metrics and based on the simulations, um, they are the most likely team to win and there is still value just based on the math. Uh, I think, I think it's tough. I think like the, you know, I like truth be told, I actually, I did something I've never done before. I have a Virginia futures ticket from a couple months ago. I have 33 to one and I'm, I, for months I've been in my head kind of racking my brain with, at what point do I want to buy out of this? Like, do I, I probably want to wait for the seating process to at least take place so I can kind of project the path, but I'm, I'm trying to get out of this as fast as possible with, you know, at getting as much money as I can. But like, I, this is not a ticket that I'm interested in holding on to very long uh, just because of all the, my sort of preconceived notions of what I think Virginia basketball is and what that means. You know, like if you're looking at their prices right now, I think you have to wait for the field to be set. Like somebody's going to get an easy draw here, probably Duke because they do every year, but like somebody's going to get an easy draw here. And, you know, at that point, you know, maybe do you grab Virginia to win the region at two to one or 175 or something, uh, kind of knowing what the path is like, uh, like maybe, but I think, you know, with all of the attention on them and the market activity, like I think the value has been kind of like sucked out of that price uh, as of right now. All right. Here's my last question for you. There are currently props that Joe Lunardi, our former colleague at ESPN, one of our favorite people, at least mine, Joey Brackets, uh, Will go undefeated. Will he get the um, everything from will he go undefeated and get all sixty eight teams, which has happened twice, to uh, will he get the first four seeds correct, the number one seeds? Um, I love the fact there are props on Joey on Joey brackets. I feel like you've entered the cultural zeitgeist in an entirely different way when Five Dimes, which is a relatively sharp book is offering props on um, on how you were going to do in your job. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's sort of like the, the Lee Corso headgear props, if you can find them. This is like that to the maximum, right? So there's, it's not just some kind of one-off entertainment prop. Will he get everything right? Yes, no. Like there was a lot of time and effort putting into – pricing and variety uh in the offerings which is which is really interesting these were these were up before even the overtime props that like i priced and some of the other buzzer beater props and stuff these these were up first uh which is just really funny to me that like that's where we are um i think there was a really interesting piece written at action network that sort of prices these out and you know the 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 reason these props are so interesting to me is that 
you know, there is data that you can go back and put together. You know, a lot of people are kind of just throwing 10 bucks, 20 bucks into a lot of these. The limits are really low um, and not maybe doing all the logical calculation associated with it. There is kind of a way to price most of this stuff a lot of the time. And, you know, that article kind of goes into the nuts and bolts of, you know, exactly how many teams he gets every year, what the average is, therefore what the right price is, all that kind of stuff. The thing that's interesting to me that the article brought up is how many one seeds he's going to get right and how, how much different that is this year than the previous pricing. And I think that goes into a philosophy that you're going to hear a ton going forward uh, in the tournament, which is, oh man, this year anybody can win. You know, I, I think I heard Dick Vitale say that during the Gonzaga game 15 times last night um, because Gonzaga is one of the teams that they were hyping up as, as a contender. And I think this price sort of reflects that, which is we don't really know who the best four teams are. Um, and I think that's true this year in terms of who gets the one seeds. I think that's still kind of unpredictable based on especially the ACC tournament. Um, you know, I think like if I had to guess, I would say he does get all four right. Uh, but I mean, the price is sort of reflecting that it's minus 140 that he will. Uh, maybe there's like a little bit of value there because by the time we get to a certain point, you know, he's going to be able to create a profile, he being Lenardi. Uh, he's going to be able to pretty accurately project this, I think, once we have all the information in. Uh, the thing that's really interesting to me, though, with this philosophy of anybody can win is I, I think it's completely fraudulent. Um, I think that there's actually a very small number of teams that can actually win the tournament. Now, there are teams that can go on deep runs, and there are like 30 of them. That's no question. Team, I mean, the equivalent of South Carolina last year. But I mean, like, if Loyola Chicago goes to the Elite Eight, does that mean anyone can win the tournament? Well, no, because that means they're going to get to that point, and they're going to play Duke, and they're going to lose. So, like, I think there's maybe six, seven teams that can win the tournament this year. Uh, so I just, you know, I kind of wanted to take a few seconds to say, you're going to get a ton of this philosophy in the next week, and, or this opinion, this take. And to me, this take is way off base. If there are six or seven teams, who do you think they are? Uh, the, the teams that I've sort of identified right now that I think can win – uh, Duke, Michigan State, Villanova, Florida, Kentucky, Wichita. Uh, I think that the team that worries me the most that's not in that group, and it, it's funny, we talked about Virginia forever. Cincinnati worries me a ton this year because I have no exposure to them whatsoever to do anything. And they actually have a profile this year that's like, really equivalent to a team that makes a deep run in the tournament. They're second in defensive efficiency with a really low number and their offensive efficiency isn't as poor as it normally is. Uh, and they've shown an ability to play really well away from home better than they normally do. Uh, they're the team that is, is sort of like not in my group that I, I, I may have to add to my group before kind of the tournament gets set. You didn't mention Virginia. You mentioned Duke, Michigan state, Florida, Kentucky, Villanova, Wichita, yep. In Cincinnati. Yep. Oh, uh, Arizona is the other team. Sorry that I, I, I had to add them to my list now that they're sort of the scandal has passed and it looks like everyone's going to play. Arizona can definitely win. It's not super likely, but they can definitely win. I, I feel like you need to write this story before the tournament. Like this could be your good Monday column. Sure, absolutely. So the, uh, in the interest of self-promotion, episode one of the Lockie Lockerson podcast was just recorded last weekend. Uh, this was one of the primary commentaries that I did up the front. So, uh, you know, any way I can spread this, this gospel to the people, uh, I'm happy to do it. So. You write the story. We'll link to the podcast. Everybody wins. Yeah, absolutely. I'm in. I'm in on it. All right. Lockie Lockerson, also known as Ken Barkley, 
I wish I could call you Ken Tremendous. I feel like that name it's taken, but I would have liked to have called you that. Uh, very knowledgeable, great work. I'm so glad all those people from ESPN that we mutually know called and told me that I had to hire you. I'm happy they did too. So I'm in a great spot and, and happy to be here. All right, brother. Thank you, man. Talk to you later. Great. Thanks, Chad. Next up on the buffet, as promised, longtime voice of afternoon sports radio in San Francisco on KNBR, former NBA player, former college superstar at Arizona, also a bit of a better. Tom Tolbert, how you doing, buddy? Tremendous, Chad, yourself. And by the way, superstar is a little bit of an over-exaggeration. Maybe a lot of an over-exaggeration, but I'll take it. Were you an All-American? Did you make any All-American teams? I think I identified you as an All-American in the earlier interview when I was previewing who was going to be on on the show today. Oh, not unless my mom and dad had an All-American list. Well, that's too bad. I feel like you've been around for so long and the fact you played in the <laughs> NBA for so long and that you were famous in college. And I feel like everybody at Arizona in the like 80s when you played there was an All-American. So I figured you must have been an All-American. Well, that's great. I appreciate I mean, I appreciate the effort. You can give me like a Lifetime Achievement Award or something like that. But uh, unfortunately, uh, no, we had two All-Americans on our team. Sean Elliott was one. Steve Kerr was the other one. Huh. I mean, those guys did all right. What are you going to do? Yeah, they're okay. They're not doing too bad for themselves, actually. When you look at Arizona, like what's going on in Arizona right now, what do you think of it both from a an alumni perspective and then what do you think of it from someone who analyzes sports? Hey, you know, that one's, that one's tough because I've talked about that type of stuff uh, for a long time. I mean, I've been doing this 20-plus years and there's always been scandals that it's been football or basketball, and it's been a rough – it's been a rough go of it the last few months for Arizona. You had the allegations of sexual misconduct going on when Rich Rod was uh, there as a football coach, so he he was let go. There were allegations of players doing stuff. Then you get the Book Richardson thing where he's funneling money or steering players to Arizona or whatever, and he gets put in cuffs and led away. And then, you know, Alonzo Trier had trace elements of the drug that he had in the system last year, and he's been cleared to play now. And then two days after that, it was the whole, you know, uh, FBA wiretap fiasco. And I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know what to think. I know Sean uh, Miller. Uh, I've met him a number of times. And, you know, I believe him when he says he's never done this. But, I mean, take it from the source. I went to Arizona. I, I want to believe him. And other coaches, maybe I don't want to believe because I don't have a personal connection with him. But, you know, I believe him. And I know, like I said this on the radio, people are rolling their eyes going, of course, you went to Arizona. And I totally get that. I'd be doing the same exact thing. Uh, and people are doing, you know, when I say something like that. But it's just weird. The whole time frame was off with the wiretap. No one can hear the wiretap. The FBA is probably not going to release it until, you know, this thing goes to trial. And who knows when it's going to trial. So it was just... It's just a bizarre thing that you can accuse somebody, somebody can leak information and, and really not have any information they can share with anybody. But ESPN stands by their report, and Sean said that he didn't do anything. So the one thing I do feel confident in saying, someone's lying. Yeah, well, <laughs> but isn't that often the case? But that's a problem. That's often the case in college sports. It's like you almost can't have the conversation without having the conversation about the inequities in college sports or um, how dirty college sports are or the mm -hmm. NCAA not managing it right. 
what do you do to fix it at this point? Well, that's a great question. And it's been going on for ever. Uh, when I went to Vegas, or I didn't go to Vegas. I, uh, I got recruited by Vegas many, many, many years ago. And I remember them telling me, I won't say when you were player, an all American. Yeah. When I was an all American, right before I was an all American. Absolutely. I think I might've had an all American burger on my recruiting visit. Uh, <laughs> They told me that they got out on a player at 90,000. And this was like in the late 80s or late 80s. Uh, and it just, it, it didn't stun me back then. It doesn't stun me now. I mean, this is going on before that, that conversation, after that conversation. I mean, it just, that's the way college athletics are. I mean, you, you're trying to get an advantage. It's, it's money for the school. It's money for the coach. Uh, unfortunately, it's not money for any of the players. That's why they decide they're going to take it. And that's why you, you get steered to certain places uh and kids are saying well wait a minute i'm making millions and billions of dollars for these people and i'm not getting paid if i get a chance to get paid i'm gonna get paid i don't blame i don't blame the kids uh boy how do you fix it? that's a good one i mean i don't know all the the uh, all the details of of what i would propose but i would i would i would propose that kids get paid not by the colleges but they get to hire a representative and if a shoe company wants to pay them 100 grand to go to arizona pay them a hundred grand to go to Arizona. If a local business wants to pay money to go to the school, let them pay money to go to the school. I know people would say, well, all the big schools are going to get all the best athletes. Well, yeah, they already do. I mean, all it's not like in basketball, Kentucky and Akron are ever going for the same player. I mean, the same schools that are going for the same players would be going for the same players, whether they're getting paid or not. So I think if they, you know, if someone wants to pay money to go to a school, let them pay money to go to a school, even if the school doesn't have to be, be involved. I think uh, uh, letting the kids go enter the NBA draft, then come back to college, even if they if they don't get drafted, that's fine. You want to go after your sophomore year, you don't get drafted, come back to school. If there's not a scholarship available for you, oh, well, go find a scholarship somewhere. Maybe there's not available one at your school. But I think we need to take care of the kids more than we need to take care of the coaches. I mean, Tubby Smith came out uh, a couple of days ago saying that uh, we're just allowing the kids to quit by transferring. It's like, well, wait a minute. What do the coaches get to do? I mean, the coaches get to transfer whenever they want to. And I don't want to hear about contracts. I mean, there's always a buyout. And if you ever want to move schools, you can move schools. Kids can't move schools. They got to sit out a year and they're the ones that are, I'm not thinking they're, they're, they're the ones that are solely responsible for making all the money. That would be inaccurate, but without the athletes, you're not going to have a sport and it's kind of hard to make money. Uh, I don't think people want to watch nothing. So I I just think we need to take care of the kids, uh, take care of the kids more, make the money above board. Then we won't worry who's getting paid and won't have investigations on who's getting paid. It'll be, well, yeah, we know they're getting paid. And let's stop calling it. If we could just get rid of the word amateurism, get rid of that word. And I think we'd be okay because people still fall in love with this idea, this notion, how pure amateurism is. And it's a bunch of bull crap is what it is. I mean, go with the Olympic model. People still watch the Olympics now, and they're making money on the side, and rightfully so. So um, I feel like you are making a similar argument for sports betting, right? In that um, athletes get paid. You might as mm -hmm. well make it above board instead of trying to legislate that. It's not going to change. And ultimately, you're not doing anything that sort of improves the life of the athletes or makes life better for the organization that's running it. Um, and you're trying to adhere to an ideal that no longer exists. You're into betting, like you're making the same case for legalized sports betting. So one of the things that always comes up when you talk about legalized sports betting is 
at the NC, it, it it's okay at the professional levels. It's not okay at the NCAA level because that is a sport where those are, that's an area where actually the athletes could be more corrupted because they mm-hmm. aren't making the kind of money that people at the NBA and the NFL levels are making. What's your take on that? Well, I mean, it's just erroneous logic is what it is. I mean, it, it, it's the same thing. It's the NBA, uh, I read somewhere where the Cardinals and the Royals also want to do this. Uh, if they want, you know, uh, legalized sports betting in their state or the NBA wants legalized sports betting, they want to charge a 1% integrity tax, which just makes me laugh. It's like the stupidest thing. I mean, who came up with this name? Let's call it the integrity tax. Maybe people will buy it. Well, I guess people will buy it they don't understand. Gambling. People that understand gambling are going to laugh at the integrity tax. Here's the bottom line, and I've been saying this for years and years and years. You're no more likely to be able to fix a game, whether betting is legal in the States, I mean, everywhere outside of Nevada, or illegal. I mean, because people can put down bets wherever they want to put down bets. I mean, if people want to get down money, they can get down money right now. They just got to get it down off offshore if you make betting legal here it's it, it, the reason it's going to be no more likely you're going to be no more likely to see game fixing is the watchdogs are the books themselves i mean the books themselves if they're not vigilant if the books themselves are not vigilant they're the ones that stand to lose yes you don't want to have scandals in sports you don't want it to be wwe where you feel like everything's scripted and why am i watching but the books are the ones that are the best watchdogs because if they hang a bad line or if someone wants to come in and bet that they don't know uh, and bet large sums of money and, and they're the ones that are going to put the red flag or raise the red flag, either call the FBI, call whoever they need to do, whatever authorities they need to call, because they're the ones that stand to lose a ton of money. That's not going to change whether you legalize sports betting or not. And I don't know why people think it is. I mean, if, if I go, to, I can go to Vegas and bet. Or if I can get a guy to fix a game for, you know, state you, I can go offshore and bet it. And now maybe it's easier to bet it, although I still contend offshore books will still, uh, I mean, they'll still live whether sports betting is legal or not. Because if you're going to bet sports legally here in the United States, you're going to actually have to pull cash out of your pocket and bet it. You're not going to be able to get down to your local, you know, bookshop and say, yeah, give me 100 on so-and-so. Oh, yeah, credit. Now, they're not going to give you credit. You're going to have to bet $110 to win 100 so credit is always going to be available with the uh, the books, and people like to have credit, and that's a lot of times how they get in trouble, but that's just a given. But I just have always found that argument just infuriating, that if you legalize sports betting, you're going to be more likely to fix games here. It's just nonsense. Regardless of who's monitoring it, don't you think it's easier for gamblers to get to college players than to NFL players? Oh, of course. I mean, logic dictates that the more money you're making – the harder it is to have you in on it because the more money you'd have to try and get down on a bet to make it worth your while, which would arouse more interest. Um, so yeah, of course, yeah, the college guys aren't making any money. Uh, so they're the ones you want to go to and say, Hey, if we give you five grand, I mean, that, that'd be like a, you know, and can you imagine in, in college when you get five grand for, you know, helping to shave points? Hey, you're supposed to win by 12, just one by less than 12, and we'll give you 5K. That'd be like all the money in the world. It'd be laughable to think you get any NBA player to do it for five grand, especially the players that matter in the NBA. I mean, those guys, you'd have to pay millions, I, I would think, to try and at least a million to try and fix a game. 
I actually feel like the if you're not, I mean, this is where the rub is because you always at the NBA level, if you're doing it, it's because you're you've got so many money problems that you are um, you're completely vulnerable to somebody coming to you and and sort of tapping you on the shoulder and saying, "Hey, I can fix this all for X." But I actually feel like the number at the NBA level is in the tens of millions. I think it's eight figures before it becomes worthwhile for an NBA player to even come close to considering throwing a game. It could be. I mean, it could be. It depends on who you're talking about. I mean, you can maybe get a third best player to do it for, you know, a million, a couple mil maybe. But again, that's what we're talking about is if you're going to pay someone, let's say you're going to pay someone a million dollars or $2 million to fix a game for you. I mean, to make it worth your while, you're going to have to get down four, five, four, five million. I mean, that, 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 I don't care who you are. You're not going to be able to jam four or five million dollars. I mean, that's, a, that's, that's tough to try to jam that type of money down on one game. So it, I just don't think, and I mean, I could be off on the numbers, obviously, but I just, it, it'd be too tough. With college, five grand, heck, you can bet 50 grand, you can get down 50 grand or 100 grand just about, uh, that some of these big guys can get that down easily so if someone were to say hey look i got great information for you you know i'll charge you 25 grand for it so the kid gets five the guy who has the information gets 25 and then the betters you know can bet 100 or whatever then everybody everybody makes money i mean yeah absolutely i still think the easiest guys to do would be and be be somewhat tougher but the officials i mean that's really where I mean, if you were trying to fix a game, just think if you had an umpire in your back pocket. I mean, you'd have a small strike zone, a large strike zone. I mean, I can't guarantee the guys can hit the ball, but if you give me an Eric Gregg strike zone in the, in the World Series about 15 years ago, the Marlins and the Indians, I like almost guarantee you that game is going to go under. Or you can get a super tight strike zone, uh, NBA, call a few more fouls, put them in the penalty earlier, bet a total, whether it be over or under. Football, hell, you could throw a flag just about in every play if you want to bet a total on that game. I mean, just say, let's oh, they're in field goal range. Let's call holding, move them back 10 yards and make it more difficult for them to score. So those are the guys I think that would be most vulnerable. I don't know that they are, but I'm just saying if you were going to fix a game, I think a total and an official, and you're probably in pretty good shape. Why do you know so much about betting? How did you get into it? Oh man, jeez! Uh, they my mom and dad played poker when I was younger, and they used to let me play occasionally with the uh, the neighborhood couples. They'd all come over and play, and I'd want to play, and I'd sit at the table and and watch them play. And they didn't let me play until God, I was probably fifteen. You know, they let me sit in a couple times, uh, a couple rounds, and we'd play poker. And then from there, me and my buddies used to go to Los Al. A racetrack down in Southern California, who it's a thoroughbred track now. It used to be quarter horses, so we used to go there on on Friday nights, and it was funny. We'd get in there, and one would pay, then we'd go in and let the other ones in through the side door of Los Al. I mean, our reasoning was, what the hell? They're going to take our money anyway. Why do we got to pay four bucks to enter? I mean, are you, are you kidding me? Let us go in there and just lose our money. So it'd be twenty bucks, <laughs> <laughs> nine races, two dollars a race. And a dollar for a hot dog, dollar for a uh, soda. So that was like uh, like Friday nights out at uh, La Salle. And then from there, you know, Vegas trips. Uh, you know, we're 18, 19. Me and my buddy used to take uh, – th- there were these trips that go to Vegas, uh, like gambling junkets, these vans that would leave like Friday evening and come back 
Sunday morning. So we'd go and get a room, like a cheap room somewhere, maybe at the Stardust. And it was funny because everyone else was going there to gamble. We didn't want to gamble the whole time. So we brought tennis rackets, and we had to hide the tennis rackets because they don't want you. I mean, <laughs> they let you on a gambling junket van with tennis rackets. Like, what the hell are you taking these guys there <laughs> play tennis? So we had to hide the rackets. We'd play tennis a little bit and then uh, and then gamble and then come home on uh, on Sunday morning. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's it. where it started, though, was probably, yeah, I'd watch my mom and dad. Watch my mom and dad play uh, play cards, and my mom likes to gamble a little bit. They live in Vegas now, and they like to go and they'll play their bingo. And they're both retired, so bingo and mom play the nickel slot stuff like that. But uh, yeah, that's probably where it started, right there, right there at home. Did you feel like you had an advantage because you were an athlete, like you understood the games better? Uh, gambling or sports wagering? Sports wagering. No, not at all. I mean, I don't think anybody. In fact, I think that's can be the worst thing for you is thinking you understand the game because there's so many gambling and picking a winner are two different things, and they just they are. And, and baseball uh, is a little bit different. Hockey's a little bit different because you have money lines. Football, and basketball are spreads. But even with the the money lines, I mean now, I mean okay, is a team worth being a one? You think they're going to win, but are they worth being a one seventy favorite? Maybe they're not, but maybe at one fifty, they're a good play. I don't think value is under. I mean, value is really really tough to understand. I, I don't really understand it myself. Uh, you know, I try to get to spreads and games and go, okay, what would it take me to bet the, the other side? If I like one side, what would it take me to bet the other side? But to back back to your original question, I don't think it helps because I understand every sport. I mean, some more, some more than others. But every every one of the four majors, I understand enough to like know what team's the better team and what team could win, what team should win. But then there's, you know, with with professional sports, scheduling is a big deal, and uh, mindset is a big deal, and you never know. I mean, that's the one thing in basketball, baseball, hockey. Who was out the night before? Who got a good night's sleep the night before? Who's having trouble in their home life? I mean, who knows all these things? I don't know all these things, but I mean, the mindset is a big deal for a professional athlete. And if you don't know it, I mean, you're kind of betting blindly a little bit, but no, I don't think I have any advantage. I know sports. I know them well. As far as gambling goes, it doesn't, I mean, it may help a little bit here or there, like betting a second half. If I watch a game, I can kind of dissect what's going on and what may continue to go on, what adjustments coaches may make at halftime. Uh, but really no eyeballs can be your worst enemy as a, as a better eyeballs is sort of what you think, you know, because of your exactly. experience. Yep. Absolutely. Right, so and you can be deceived. The, the game that I want to play with you is that we have, you know, people who have been very successful in life. Uh, so, some would say they're all Americans. Um, Why'd you have me on that? <laughs> exactly. Uh, they, they will come on and I will say, uh, it's, a, it's a segment we call You Bet Your Life. Okay. You're going to tell me the, the biggest risk you've taken in life and how it played out. Could be good news, could be bad news, could be bad news that led to something else down the road that ultimately was fantastic. But tell me about the biggest risk you've taken in life and what happened. In life or in wagering? Life. God, I don't even know what risk I've taken in life. I guess, whew, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I, I guess what led me here, and I don't know if I'd have been here uh, anyway, 
But when I was at UC Irvine, I, uh, I, I got a scholarship to UC Irvine out of high school. I went to Artesia High School, scholarship to UC Irvine, uh, was there for a year and a half, and I transferred to Cerritos College to play football. I wanted to play football. I never played football in high school, and I, I thought, you know what, I can I could play football. I know I can play football. I know I can play it at a big-time level, and I'm going to go to Cerritos College and, and, and play football. So I told my mom. Mom was furious that I had given up my scholarship or I was going to give up my scholarship at Irvine because Irvine's a, you know, it's a pretty good school, and I can get a, you know, get a, at least get an education. And I just said, look, this is what I'm going to do. Is that I, I, I want to do this. So I didn't even make it to spring practice, and we were just running uh, some 7-on-7, uh, seven seven, I think it might have been running. Or maybe, no, maybe it was 11-on-11, 11 11, but we weren't even in pads. So uh, I got to do a crossing route, and I'm crossing. I get knocked down by the, uh, by the tight end or by the defensive end, and the other tight end comes across, and he's running a, a shallower crossing route, and he hits the clips my shoulder as I'm getting up. My whole body spins. My cleat gets stuck in the ground. I dislocate my hip. Never dislocated anything in my life. I knew exactly what I'd done when I did it. It was the most painful thing ever. So I'm laying on the ground uh, for about a half an hour. Get the ambulance out there. Take me to the uh, hospital. Put the hip back in place, which was which was interesting. They finally gave me a shot, and I, I look at the doctor, and he's standing over me with my leg, trying to pull it and and configure it to where he could get the get at the right angle and then pull it up real quick to get the hip back in the socket and i couldn't feel anything at the time but i'm looking at him thinking that's my leg that's my leg i closed my eyes and went to bed i couldn't watch anymore <laughs> it's like ridiculous so i remember watching the villanova georgetown uh NCAA final i think that was 85 maybe uh in the hospital bed i was in the hospital for like a week and I said, all right, that's enough of uh, enough football. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna get back to playing basketball. So after my uh, hip healed, I started playing hoops again, getting in shape, and then got a scholarship to Arizona. And the the rest is kind of history. But that was a you know that was a you know who knows what would happen if I wouldn't have got hurt. Uh, it ended up working out okay for me. Although now I have a new hip to to show for it. I got that a couple years ago. Uh, so yeah, that was probably the biggest risk I took because I didn't know exactly what was going to happen. I felt like it would work out. Okay. Like I would figure out a way to, to make this thing work. I still felt like I could have played football if I wouldn't have been, been injured. But if I didn't leave Irvine, then who knows if I, if I go to Arizona, probably not final four, probably not met my wife at Arizona and that led to an NBA career, which led to doing the radio up here. So you never know what turns, uh, turns you may make in life right or left and how it's going to work out well i would agree with you you stay at irvine you are never getting any of those things like irvine was just not a basketball factory in the way arizona was you're not playing with sean elliott and steve kerr and getting coached by lute olson if like you're at uc irvine no there's there's no there's no doubt uh, the fun, i'll give you a funny aside so bill mulligan who was the coach late bill mulligan uh, at Irvine when I was there, and I told him I wanted to transfer. I remember we were sitting out by uh, by the pool uh, at Santa Clara, the cable car class, and I told him, I go, you know, this just isn't working out. I go, I just, I just, I don't feel like you trust me. I don't feel like I want to be here. I don't know that you want me here. I go, I'm just gonna, you know, I'm gonna transfer and try to play football at Cerritos College, and you know, maybe if that doesn't work, maybe play basketball somewhere. And I remember him looking at me, and go, he goes, it's not gonna work. 
I go, all right, well, I guess if you don't care, I go, what, what difference does it make? Then let me let me go. Anyway, I think it was a little angry that I was leaving. Uh, so anyway, fast forward a number of years. I'd already been in the NBA a few years and and having a pretty good career. And I was in Vegas, <laughs> surprisingly, yeah. uh, walking down the strip. Uh, and I, who did I run into? Bill Mulligan. Bill Mulligan was actually in Vegas, and I ran into him. I go, hey, coach, I go, what's going on? He goes, hey, Tommy, how are you? He goes, remember what I said? I go, oh, yeah. He goes, I was wrong. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I told him, I said, well, you didn't need to tell me that. I go, I already, I already knew that. I'd already been in the NBA for like four years at the time. But it was kind of a, kind of a funny moment uh, that he goes, yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, I know. <laughs> who, is the, who is the best gambler in the NBA when you were playing? Oh, I don't know of one. I don't know of any good gamblers. I used to I used to make money on road trips playing. Uh, we'd play when I was with the Clippers, and I and they loved. So we played poker, and they loved playing like new games. So I had all kinds of new games, and of course I knew the rules of the games, and I was teaching them the rules of the games, and it was going to cost them money to learn the rules of the games. Uh, but they didn't care. You know, I bet twenty or forty bucks. I bet twenty. Or, you know, I raised fifty, sixty. So one of my favorite games was seven card no peak. And for those that have never played it, what it is is you get seven cards uh, and they're all face down. So you can't see any of your cards and the person to your immediate left starts first, you go clockwise. So you turn over a card off the top of the deck and let's say it's a five. The person to the left has to keep turning over cards until they beat the five. So let's say your first card's an ace. Boom, you beat it. Round of betting. Next person goes, they have to beat an ace. So either an ace plus something or a pair. So a pair of fours. Now they bet. Now the other person has to beat a pair of fours. So it just keeps going around. You have to beat the person to your right, and then a round of betting commences. So it was awesome because they love to play it because they love the suspense of, of turning over the cards and seeing what they could get. And all the meanwhile, I'm counting all the cards on the table saying, okay, what do I have on my hand? How many cards are out there? If I need a four and there's four fours out there, obviously I can't get it. If there's no fours out there, I get a better chance of getting it. Uh, how many spades are out there? If I need a spade flush or a stray, all those sort of things. So, you know, I'd fold if I didn't have a good hand or I'd raise if I thought I had a decent chance at, uh, of catching the card and, and winning the pot. They didn't care. They just wanted to bet and keep turning their cards over to see what they had. I mean, one time, I forgot who it was, turned his cards over like he bet. I think I bet like 50, 60 bucks, something like that. And he turned his cards over and he like couldn't beat me. He just wanted to be like, he wanted, I didn't tell him, but he wanted to see like, okay, what do I have here? I'm like, oh, thanks for the 50 bucks. Like, I mean, not mathematically, he couldn't beat me. He just could not beat me. He didn't have enough cards left uh, that he hadn't seen to be able to beat my full house or whatever I had. So yeah, that was fun. And then we had guys, uh, we had a guy with the, uh, the Warriors. I was playing, playing blackjack with him and uh, I guess I could say his name. I said on the radio, Tyrone Hill, who I played with, and I like Tyrone a lot, but I mean, just his blackjack skills. We're, we're, we're playing blackjack, and he gives me my cards, and 18, okay, I'll stay. And he flips his over, 15, 7, 22. And he goes to take my money. I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> he goes, what's well, closest to 21? I go, what? What are you, what? What do you mean closest to 21? It's not closest to 21. It's close to 21 without going over 21. He goes, no, it's not. I go, I go, somebody tell this guy. I go, somebody tell him that's the way you play blackjack. 
So finally he goes, yeah, that's, yeah, of course that's the way you play blackjack, so I take my money. And the next time, we both get 20s, and he goes to take my money again. And I go, what are you doing? He goes, well, dealer gets pushes. I go, I, I, where, do you, I go where do you play blackjack? Because I want to go play there. I want to go play yeah, blackjack right. where you go play blackjack. Or either that or you let me deal. I go, if you let me deal with your rules, I swear I'll drive to your house after we get back from road trips, and I'll just deal to you. You just tell me when you're done, and I'll go home. And then you tell me when you want to play, and I'll come back and deal some more. I go, if it's closest to 21 and I get pushes – you count me in for that. Well, like, it, basically everyone wants to play at the House of Hill. Like, that is – he's setting the rules. Whatever rules he decides are the ones you get to play by. feels like everyone's going to make a lot more money. <laughs> like, 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 that was ready. I, could, I, I wouldn't be doing this job. If I could deal blackjack like that, I'd open up my own joint. But, like, when you're in the NBA, how high do the hands get? Like on a card, Like, on a card game on the plane, how high will the hands get? Highest the hand I had, highest hand I ever got. We were playing frickin' uh, AC Ducey, or Between the Sheets. It, 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 I'm sure anybody that plays cards knows what that is. But basically, it's two cards. You put two cards down, and if you think you can get between those two cards, you bet as much of the pot as you want to. So uh, a six and a ten would be terrible. Uh, two and a king would be great. Your best hand would be ace ace called because you can call the first ace high or low and i always called the first ace low just in case i got the second ace which was always high because then boom you're 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 good the only way you can get beat is with another ace now the catch is if you match your card you pay double so if you happen to get another ace which i've seen happen before and it's not pretty uh you got to double the pot so this is what i was with the warriors and it was like me and nelly and timmy and uh, God, I, don't, I don't think Chris was playing. Uh, maybe Mitch and, and Rod and I mean, there's all, all of us. Like a lot, so many of us were playing. So the pot was at one point four four thousand dollars, and it was my turn. First card, ace low. Second card, ace high. Now I'm a rookie at this point, so I'm making decent money, but not not you know, maybe a couple hundred grand, something like that. So I'm thinking, okay, whew, either I can, I, I can go for all of it. Either I win four grand, which is almost assured because there's only two aces left in the deck because it is a fresh deck. So there's still two aces lurking. I'm thinking, okay, either I win four, I'm going to lose eight. I go, I can't, I, go, I can't lose eight. I go, I don't, I mean, eight grand. I go, you kidding me on a, on a card? So I, I, I said, I'll go for half of it. So I went for two. And, of course, it came like seven of diamonds. And I was like, God dang it. Why didn't I go for all of it? That's stupid. I should have went for all of it. Uh, and then I ended up winning a little bit more. But there ended up being like, I think, 7000 in the pot at one point. Because, I mean, the guys that have money, they don't care. Jack four. Oh, that must be good. It's a face card and a, kind of a low card. That must be pretty good. It's like, dude, there's like 13 cards. Start figuring out what cards are in the middle of seven jacks and four. You got five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That's six. That doesn't quite add up now, does it? They didn't care. I was like, oh, face card, four, we're good. So the pot got huge, and I just remember uh, one of my favorite parts was uh, I think Nelly went uh, for it one time, missed it, and I don't know how it ended up working out, but I ended up having like a $2,400 check from Nelly, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> I love, I love, I love that he's writing you a check. That is fantastic. Write me a check for an AC Doozy game. <laughs> I love he's writing you a check for twenty four hundred dollars, and uh, he's also like one of the greatest coaches that ever lived. I love the fact that he's knee deep in the game. 
Oh, awesome. Oh, absolutely. It was an ED for the game. It was an unbelievable game. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, Tom Tolbert, I got to let you go, man. Uh, get back to your all-American life and to your radio oh, yeah, show. You know me. <laughs> I know it, man. You're living large. Uh, thanks oh, for coming yeah, on the podcast. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem, Chad. And have a uh, fun conference turning week and a fun NCAA tournament, and uh, hopefully it'll be profitable for all of us. I hope so, too. I'll talk to you later, man. See you, Chad. Thanks. Thanks.